Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. This morning I want to pick up uh, our study from chapter 2, verses 11 through to 22, and again I'm reading to you from the Living Bible. Time passed, Moses grew up. One day he went and saw his brothers, saw all that hard labor. Then he saw an Egyptian hit a Hebrew, one of his relatives. He looked this way and that. When he realized there was no one, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. The next day he went out there again. Two Hebrew men were fighting. He spoke to the man that started it. Why are you hitting your neighbor? The man shot back. Why, uh, who do you think you are telling us what to do? Are you going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? Moses panicked. Word has gotten out. People know about this. Pharaoh heard about it and tried to kill Moses, but Moses got away to the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water, filling their troughs and watering their father's sheep. When some of the shepherds came and chased the girls off, Moses came to their rescue and helped them water their sheep. When they got home, their father, Reuel, said, That didn't take so long. Why are you back so soon? An Egyptian, they said, rescued us from, a bunch, from the bunch of shepherds. Why, he even drew water for us and watered our sheep. He said, so where is he? Why did you leave him behind? Invite him so he can have something to eat with us. Moses agreed to settle down there with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to him for his wife. She had a son and Moses named him Gershom, sojourner, saying, I am a sojourner in a foreign country. When Stephen is commenting about this issue in his defense speech in Acts chapter 7, he says, Now when he was 40 years old, this is Moses, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Moses, adoptive son of Pharaoh's daughter, somehow knew about his Hebrew origins. How he knew, we are not told. That's left to our imagination. But the passage says when he was grown or when he became of age or more literally when he became great. It seemed that the whole world lay at Moses' feet. For Stephen commenting on this said he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. At this time, when he was 40 years old, he turned his back on the riches and the prestige of Egypt. Remember last week we talked about he esteemed, he chose, he refused. And he went out to see his own people, his brethren. So clearly he knew of his Hebrew origins. Knowing those origins, perhaps as a boy growing up, a dream of liberating Israel had been conceived in his heart. Perhaps he keenly anticipated a time when he would have a position and the power to act on that dream. The divine call to be a deliverer percolating within him moves him to go out and visit his own people. And what he sees and what he does changes the tra trajectory of his life. He finds an Egyptian slave master beating a defenseless Hebrew slave. And the nature of the brutal beating impels Moses to act in the face of this injustice. And he steps forward and kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. The phrase, he looked this way and that before he killed the Egyptian, is an interesting one. And I have always tended to read that in a very negative way, as if Moses, about to do something drastic and being somewhat fearful, looks around to make sure nobody is watching. 
Nobody is observing what he is about to do. And a number of translations, including the one that I read uh, at, the be- at the beginning, conveys that idea. However, I, the more I thought about this, the more I thought perhaps that's not the natural way to read it. Firstly, a building site, which presumably this is, is not exactly a closed off location and there was more than likely a number of people around. A couple of verses later in the passage, we discovered that there, people, there were people who knew exactly what had transpired and what Moses had done. So the idea of no one being around is probably somewhat suspect. The next day when Moses tries to break up a fight, Uh, between the two Hebrews, one of them says, we saw what you did yesterday to the Egyptian. Are you going to try that on me as well? So people knew and saw what Moses had done. Secondly, the phrase looking this way and that is more likely to mean that Moses looked to see if there was anyone to help and to intervene rather than simply looking around to see if anybody was looking. Now, let me show you why I say that. That very same phrase in the Hebrew is used in Isaiah 59 verses 15 through 16 where it says, The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He looked this way and that. That's the same Hebrew phrase. And he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory and his own righteousness upheld him. Now here's a picture of God himself looking this way and that. Now clearly God is not looking furtively around to make sure nobody is looking. The Hebrew word indicates that he is looking for somebody to side with him in confronting the injustice, but he finds no one. There's no one to intervene. So he moves by and for himself. The exact same phrase is used in Isaiah chapter 63 verse verse 5 where it says, I looked but there was no helper. I stared, but there was no one to sustain me, so my own arm brought me victory. Now the message has, I looked around for someone to help, but no one. I couldn't believe it, not one volunteer. Now that's the same idea as as is used in the book of Exodus. And I, I can't prove it, but my suspicion is that Moses was actually looking around for somebody to help him intervene in this situation. Someone to take his side, as it were, rather than just slyly checking to make sure no one was looking. The the repetition in the Hebrew shows the earnestness of his looking. He is looking this way and that with, with great earnestness. There's no one to stand with him, no one to intervene in the injustice. So in his frustration and his anger, he moves to right the situation by himself. And from that moment, everything goes south, as they say, for Moses. The apparent inaction or indifference of others to a cause that they feel very strongly about often results in something very similar in the life of other budding deliverers. It's a pattern that I've observed many times in my ministry. People come to me at a point, with a point of and a passion for a real God-given ministry that's, that's birthed in their hearts. They feel a genuine divine prompting to minister in some sphere, to be a deliverer as it were. Could be in the realm of social justice with a concern for the poor and the marginalized. It might be in the area of evangelism or hospitality or intercession or overseas ministries. The the possibilities are endless. And like Moses, with their dream percolating in their heart, they start looking around for someone to stand with them, someone who will share the burden and the passion. They often end up in my office sharing the passion that they feel about that area of ministry. And where and when it's appropriate, I will always try and encourage them. 
However, I have to say it does require a little discernment on my part and, and, and more than a little wisdom. Because what I have found over the years is that some people feeling this burden simply want to pass it to me. And it's as if once they've passed it to me as the minister, then the job is finished. And what they want to say, or they want me to say rather, is fantastic. I'll get this ministry up and running and I'll get you involved when, where and as you want to. I have to say that those meetings don't usually last that long. I recall someone coming to a pastor and asking him if they had a visitation program. And on replying that they did, he, the pastor, was handed a list of people that this kind soul had on their heart. The wise pastor looked at the list, handed it back and said to him, you are the visitation program. If you have these people on your heart, you visit them. You know, I recall somebody coming to me years ago with the suggestion that we should do street evangelism on a Friday night when there are lots of people downtown. What I think they meant was that if I was even half, to, half a pastor, I would be doing street evangelism downtown on a Friday night when there were lots of people around. And what they found out as they feared was that I was less than half a pastor, especially when I told them that if they had that on their hearts, they should go and do it. Um, I've had those kinds of conversations with people who have wanted extra prayer meetings or extra this and that. And what they really want is me to have extra prayer meetings and this and that rather than I'm prepared to put my shoulder to the wheel and do this because I have a God-given passion for it. You know, a number of years ago, I recall we decided we wouldn't have a service on Christmas Day, but that we would move to, instead to Christmas Eve. And I had one outraged congregant come and chide me for not having a service on Jesus's birthday. Now, I don't know what made me ask the question that I asked, but I'm so glad that I did because I then asked, will you be there then if we have it? And somewhat embarrassed, they said that they wouldn't because they would be off with their family. And probably a little too carnally and much too sarcastically, I responded, oh, I get it. You want me to celebrate Christmas vicariously for you while you're with your family. My family get to pay the price. I'm so grateful that those kinds of conversations are actually quite few and far between. And that most people who come to me with passion resonating in their heart, genuinely are looking for ways to see ministry birth and are quite willing to raise up their, uh, roll up their sleeves and not just want to see me roll up mine. Even though they are genuine and what they feel uh, is real, there's an eerily similar pattern that I've noticed. Now, I usually tell people that have got something, you know, a dream percolating in their heart, float the idea with people, see if there's any resonance with it in others. And so they go and excitedly share their dreams and look for support. And more often than not, or as often as not, there is nobody or at least too few people willing to help. They look around this way and that and they find very few people and sometimes nobody. The people that they thought would be inspired aren't. People are indifferent to or uninterested in what this budding deliverer feels that God has put on their heart and, and, and is God's agenda for the moment. So in these moments, sometimes like Moses, they decide to fulfill the dream under their own steam with, for the most part, predictable results. The people Moses thought that he was helping responded with rejection and anger. The equivalent of a modern day snarl, who died and made you the boss? Not everybody is excited by what excites us. Disappointment, disillusionment, and sometimes retreat from ministry altogether follows. Some people go angrily blaming the church and church leadership for their indifference and insensitivity to what was clearly God's agenda. 
How do you respond when things and plans to bring deliverance don't go as you expect? Well, one way that I know doesn't work is carnal anger. It didn't work for Moses. It doesn't work for you and I. James says in chapter 1, verse 20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When those things happen, I often say to people, a key concept is that you nurture what I call relaxed concern. Now, relaxed concern doesn't mean a retreat into indifference once you feel like you've been rejected. It's not a spiritual cop-out. However, the truth is that we sometimes get our concern and our compassion and certainly our timing muddled up to the point where we're prone to accepting God's responsibility rather than working out ours. We get our responsibility and God's responsibility confused. We can become impetuous and presumptuous and like Moses, we move in our own strength. You know, in our culture, we are unapologetically addicted to the immediate and we feel justifiably discontent with delay, so we move. Relaxed means we are willing to wait God's timing. Concern means we keep the dream alive and that prevents us from retreating into just calloused indifference. So you hold your dream and this desire to be a deliverer with relaxed concern because timing is vital. One blow struck when the time is right is worth a thousand struck in premature, um, when, when the timing is premature. Moses assumed, moving against that Egyptian, that his brethren would understand that God had appointed him to be their deliverer. He kills the Egyptian taskmaster, and the Bible says the next day he went out again, perhaps expecting a champion's welcome. Well, he was in for a rude shock because verse 13 says, When he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And the Hebrew word behold has the sense of surprise in it. It could be translated, the next day he went out and guess what? Would you believe there were two Hebrews fighting? Moses tries to intervene and he gets a stinging rejection from them for his trouble. For the first time in his life, but by no means the last, Moses finds himself profoundly rejected by the very people he's trying to help. This will be the story of his life. And of course, it was the story of another deliverer's life who also came to his own and his own received him not. As a result of these events, Moses is severely compromised. He wasn't accepted by his own people. And since Pharaoh knows what has happened and is now trying to kill him, it's no longer safe to be able it's no longer safe to go back to the palace so he runs for the wilderness you know the first exodus is one man's lonely flight into the wilderness to escape from certain death in Egypt and he flew he flees to Midian probably east of Egypt somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula in all likelihood he is confused disillusioned and fearful in fact Exodus chapter 2 verse 14 says he was fearful which for some people raises an interesting question because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 27 says by faith Moses forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king so people say well Don, is this a contradiction? Is this a discrepancy? One says he was fearful, the other says he wasn't. Well, Hebrews 11 is referring to the second time he left Egypt with Israel. He forsook Israel. Uh, he forsook Egypt with Israel, not fearing the wrath of the king. It's not referring to the first occasion that he fled. In the first instance, by fear he fled. In the second instance, by faith he forsook. Moses had completely failed in his desire to deliver his people. What we must know, and I, I guess it's easy to say, not so easy to experience, is that failure is never final. Uh, 
So many famous examples of this. J.K. Rowling's first manuscript of Harry Potter was rejected by 12 publishers before it was ever embraced by another. Um, William Golding's novel, The Lord of the Rings, was, it suffered 21 rejections before it was accepted and ultimately went on to win a Nobel Prize for Literature. The first person who auditioned the Beatles suggested that they had no future in show business. We know that initial failure is, is not final. Winston Churchill once quipped the ability to go from, that success is the ability to go from one failure to another without losing enthusiasm. So Moses arrives in Midian and he sits down by a well and with almost a comic sense of deja vu, Moses witnesses an act of injustice. And it appears that he can't help himself. He has to step in to deliver. Verse 16 says, The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water, filling the troughs and watering their sheep. And some shepherds came along and chased the girls away. And Moses came to their rescue and helped them. And I wonder in that moment as if God didn't whisper in his ears, when you tried, Moses, to deliver a whole nation, you bit off a bit more than you can presently chew. You don't have that level of faith yet. You, you are a deliverer, but there are levels of faith. Remember, three months, six years, a few shepherd girls. That's where you're going to start. Start, start here. And, and we grow in our levels of faith and in our ability to function as a deliverer. You know, in the story of David, he was anointed three times, once as a young shepherd boy, then later on as king over a tribe, and then ultimately uh, over the whole of Israel. And each anointing brought enlargement and extinction in terms of his influence and ministry. Mark chapter 4 verse 28 in the New Testament gives us a perspective on this idea of growth and increase. First, the, yield, the earth yields crops by itself, the blade first, then the head, and after that, the full grain in the head. So Moses has to learn this process of deliverance. And in verse 17, Moses stood up and helped these girls. It's interesting, but the word helped in the Hebrew is the word yasha, and it's the exact same word that's used of God's deliverance in terms of Israel in chapter 14 and verse 13. And in verse 19, it says, The woman said to their father, An Egyptian delivered us. And that Hebrew word is Natsal. And again, it's used of God's activity in chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 6. It describes God's delivering work in the nation of Israel. And what, what's happening here is Moses is learning to do what God does. Deliver people, just like God does. But he has to start at a level that's appropriate to his faith. Just as an aside to this whole story, I've commented about some of the remarkable parallels between Exodus and, and connecting it with the story of, of Genesis. I talked about Moses' ark and Noah's ark. This time there is an amazing connection between Moses and Jacob. Both, both Jacob and Moses had to flee for their lives. Jacob had to flee from Esau's wrath. Moses is fleeing from Pharaoh's. Both run to distant, deliver, uh, to distant relatives, Jacob to his uncle Laban, Moses to Midian, who is a distant relative through Abraham. Both sit down by a well on their arrival at the destination. Both end up helping some shepherd girls water their flocks. Both get invited to the girls' home. Both end up marrying one of the girls. Jacob marries Rachel and Leah also, actually. And Moses marries Zipporah. Jacob spends the next 20 years looking after his, father, his uncle's flock, while Moses spends the next 40 looking after uh, his father-in-law's flock. 
In Stephen's defense, in Acts chapter 7, he tells us that Moses looked after uh, Jethro's flock for 40 years. When 40 years were expired, he says, D.L. Moody once commented, for the first 40 years in Moses' life, he thought he was somebody. For the next 40 years in his life, he learned that he was a nobody. And for the final 40 years of his life, he found out what God can do with a nobody. As much as we would prefer it to be otherwise, wilderness seasons, because that's what this was for Moses, loom large in the lives of God's budding deliverers. The list of heroes, biblical heroes that endured them is like a Bible's who's who. Moses, David, Elijah, John the Baptist, Paul, and of course, Jesus himself. When we speak of wilderness seasons, Midian seasons, winter seasons, call them what you like, they aren't limited in our understanding to physical um, sand and rocks, but rather to empty and abandoned places. The wilderness can wear many faces. It can be crowded with people and yet desperately lonely. It, it can rain day and night without reprieve, and yet it's desperately barren. Flowers may bloom and there may be blossom all around, and yet internally it's desolate. Nobody, or at least very few people, choose voluntarily to go into the wilderness. Sometimes, like Moses, we find ourselves there as a result of failure or disappointment, but other times, at least from our perspective, we're there for no apparent reason. Changing the, the metaphor somewhat from, from desert to, to winter, we, we, we actually much prefer summer seasons, the fruitful times in our lives. And I know this might shock some of you and perhaps challenge your theology, but I'd want to say to you that God loves you way, way too much to leave you in summer seasons, to leave you with an unbroken string of success. You know, the Arabs have a saying, all sunshine makes desert. And God knows that complete, absolute, unbroken prosperity will in the end break us. We, we need winter seasons. What the plenty of summer hides, the nakedness of winter reveals. And the lifeless limbs that are concealed by summer's boastings are now exposed and can be safely pruned. It's really critical that we don't mistake these winter seasons, these desert seasons, as being unimportant. In these unseen times, we are granted the opportunity to wrestle with ourselves, our ambitions, our appetites, our passions, before other people's lives are at stake as a result of them. We get to struggle with our passions privately before a possible public moral collapse affects numerous innocent people. And if we don't deal with the issues of this season, then they will deal with us and to us in another season. Our response in these desert seasons really is important. Unseen is not the same thing as unimportant. In her brilliant little book called Anonymous by Alicia Brick Cawley, she states, in the daily rhythm of anonymous seasons, it can be exceedingly difficult to remember that every choice we make today influences a tomorrow that we cannot see. These wilderness, desert, winter seasons become a chisel by which God fashions the man or woman of God. The wilderness years were years in which Moses' rough edges were sanded smooth. The literal blast furnace of the desert refined the character of the man of God. Egypt was sandblasted out of his life. Starting with a few motley sheep, he learned the principles of good and godly leadership. 
He was taken from one who at 40 was mighty in words and deeds to one who at 80 is described as the meekest man in all the earth. He was taken from a somebody to a nobody. And for the next season, he's about to learn what God can do with a nobody who has submitted to his purposes. You know what? I suspect that many of you can identify with Moses in this point of your journey. Perhaps you've tried to do what you thought God was leading you to do and it fell flat on its face or you fell flat on your face and things didn't work out the way you thought they would. You didn't have anything like the success that you had hoped and dreamed from for and it feels like a desperate wilderness season. Can I just say to you, don't try and extract yourself from the season. Don't run from the dealings of God. Keep holding your dreams with relaxed concern. Wait for God's timing, remembering that one blow struck in the timing of God is worth a thousand struck prematurely. Wait for his timing. God isn't finished with you yet, and your story is not over until he says it is. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.